0: Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, this week, where we'll look at how movies depicted historical events that happened between February 6th and February 12th. Let's get into it. February 8th, 1587, England. A woman walks through the crowd. Her bright red hair stands out from the black attire worn by everyone in the room. She, too, is wearing black. She walks defiantly among the men in the room. In the center of the room, we can see a platform. Two men stand on it. A small wooden block also sits on the platform. One of the men on the platform addresses her, saying that by order of our sovereign Elizabeth, Queen of England, Wales, and Ireland, Sersha Ronan's face doesn't change from her defiant look as she walks closer to the man speaking to her on the platform. The man continues to talk to her, telling her that she, Mary Stewart, is condemned to death on this day, February the 8th, in the year of our Lord, 1587. Mary turns around on the platform and throws off her black outfit to reveal a bright red dress underneath. It's a stark contrast to everyone else wearing black in the room. Mary speaks a message to her only son, James. She prays that he will succeed where she could not. Then she places her head on the wooden block. This is the depiction from 2018's Mary, Queen of Scots. And it is true that Mary Stuart was executed by beheading this week in history on February 8, 1587 at Fotheringay Castle in England. She had been charged with treason in a plot to murder Queen Elizabeth I. The true story is a lot more complex than that. In a nutshell, Mary Stuart fell in love with her cousin, Henry Stewart, also known as Lord Darnley. But he turned out to be not such a great guy, so Mary kept him out of her political life. Henry thought Mary was having an affair with her secretary, a man named David Rizzio. So Henry had David killed. Meanwhile, Mary met another guy named James Hepburn, also known as the 4th Earl of Bothwell. Soon after that... Henry was killed, and people believed Mary and James were behind Henry's death. No one knows if she actually was behind it or not, but we do know that Mary and James were married that same year, and that made a lot of people upset. Although some historians believe that Mary was actually a victim here, forced into marriage with James that she didn't want. Battles ensued, though, and Mary's forces were defeated, so she was forced to flee. She ended up in England, where she thought she'd be protected by her cousin. Queen Elizabeth the Nope. You see, Mary was considered by many to have a claim to the throne of England. Too much for comfort, it would seem. Some thought Elizabeth should do away with Mary, but Elizabeth didn't want to kill her cousin. So instead, Mary spent 19 years imprisoned on the orders of Elizabeth. Granted, those prisons were castles and manors. Mary was, after all, a queen. When some evidence came to light that Mary might be involved in a plot against Elizabeth, she was convinced to change her position and agreed to sign the order to have Mary executed for treason. Some historians have suggested that Mary really did wear a red dress that day. Did it look like the one in the movie? We don't know. But it's believed that she liked to wear bright colors and the color red was one of her favorites, so it's very possible. As for the movie's mention of Mary's son at the very end, well, he did end up succeeding where she could not. Elizabeth I didn't have any heirs, so when she died in 1603, it was Mary Stuart's son, James, who became King James VI and first king of England and Ireland and king of Scotland. As a fun fact, if you've ever heard of the King James Version of the Christian Bible, and it was named after Mary Stewart's son because he was the one who commissioned its translation in 1604. If you want to watch the event this week, check out the 2018 movie Mary, Queen of Scots. I'd recommend watching the whole movie, but her beheading that was actually this week in history starts at about an hour and 53 minutes into the movie. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the EarnIn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. February 9th, 1943, Guadalcanal. James Badgedale's character, Private Robert Lecky, is resting on a palm tree as he writes down a poem. A cigarette hangs from his mouth. Behind Lecky, we can see other American soldiers walking among the palm trees. A military truck passes by, and we can see that we're in a camp. All the soldiers look tired, exhausted. Another soldier, Wilbur Conley, whose nickname is Runner, stops by to chat with Lecky. He says Lecky should pass on greetings in the letter that he's writing. But Lecky corrects him. It's not a letter. It's an ode to our glorious victory at Guadalcanal. A few other soldiers nearby joke with Lecky about how hard it is to rhyme with Guadalcanal. Up walks Second Lieutenant Hugh Corrigan, with a big grin on his face. He tells the other men to get their gear. We're finally getting off this ship. And in the next shot, we can see a bunch of landing craft on the beaches. They're empty, implying that they're not there to drop off men on the beaches, but to pick up the soldiers from the beaches. And in the distance, over a dozen ships can be seen on the horizon. This scene from HBO's The Pacific of soldiers sitting around joking about poetry might not seem like it's a major event, but it is because it marks the end of six months of grueling battle that saw over 24,000 Japanese and 1,600 Americans killed, not counting dozens of warships and plenty more on both sides who died from tropical diseases. The Battle of Guadalcanal was considered a decisive victory for the Americans, and it was extremely important because its location opened up a major Allied base of operations. After all, once the Japanese took control of the island in 1942, they established an airfield there that continually attacked Allied supply routes for Australia and New Zealand. Once the Battle of Guadalcanal ended this week in history... That hold over the Central Pacific region was lost for the Japanese during World War II. It was a massive blow and ensured both a safe route in the sea between the United States and Australia, as well as ensuring Australia wouldn't be invaded by the Japanese. With the airfield under their control, it also helped the Allies gain air superiority in the region. If you want to watch the event in history this week, I would recommend actually watching both the first and second episode of HBO's miniseries, The Pacific. But the whole battle was months long, and the end of the battle that happened this week is right near the end of episode two, about 45 minutes into that episode. And if you want to learn more about the true story, we took a deep dive into history behind the whole series with historian Marty Morgan on episodes number 190, 191, and 192 of Based on a True Story. Guadalcanal is covered in episode number 190, but you can find all of them at basedonatruestorypodcast.com Slash the Pacific. February 11th, 1963. Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, let's start with the pot on the burner. Then it comes off, you give it a taste, and then it goes to the top oven over there. Sarah Lancashire's version of Julia Child is listening intently as Fran Krantz's version of Russ Marash gives her instructions. The cameras practice their movements from the burner to the oven. Julia's friend, Avis DeVoto, shows two bowls of onions, one peeled, another unpeeled, and then yet a third already cooked, so they don't have to take the time to perform each step on camera. Russ explains that they'll swap out the onions as the camera is tight on Julia. Julia asks Russ which camera is which. That's the problem that she had during the pilot. Russ agrees (laughs) it was a problem, so he pulls out two hand puppets and says he stole them from the set of Karate Cats. Holding up one of the puppets, Russ tells Julia that she'll talk to Binky until you go for the cutting board. After that, you'll talk to Bucci. Russ holds up the other puppet as he mentions the name Bucci. Before they begin, Julia thanks the crew for giving her the opportunity to do the show. Regardless of what happens, at least there will always be leftovers. (laughs) and Everybody claps at this. Strictly speaking, what I just described is not an event that happened this week in history, but that's only because the scene that we heard about is from HBO's miniseries, Julia. It's showing the rehearsal of Julia Child's very first episode called Beef Bourbignon. But it was this week in history on February 11th, 1963, that the very first episode of The French Chef that we saw rehearsed in the HBO series aired on WGBH in Boston, Massachusetts. Although I should probably qualify that. You see, there was technically a pilot episode that aired July 26th, 1962. Then there were two more episodes broadcast in the summer of 1962 that were also considered pilots. It hadn't become a weekly show yet. And at that time, she wasn't quite a household name, but she was a big hit. Viewers loved how she introduced them to a style of cooking that wasn't considered possible to cook at home at the time. French cuisine just wasn't that popular for home cooks in the United States in the 1960s. And her style was popular enough to support 10 seasons over the course of a decade, making her a household name in the process. The event in history that I mentioned, although the rehearsal of the first episode, is at 39 minutes into episode number three of HBO's Julia. Oh, and as a little side note, I had a great guest to cover that series here in a lot more depth, but sadly, it fell through. So if you know of someone would be a good guest to come on to chat about hbo's julia let me know this episode of based on a true story this week was written and produced by me dan lefebvre before i let you go while not a historical events there are some birthdays this week for people who have been mentioned in movies or tv shows on february 6th 1756 aaron burr was born in newark new jersey He's perhaps best known for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, something that we see in the fantastic Broadway musical Simply Called Hamilton. If you haven't had a chance to see it live, you can catch the movie on Disney Plus, where Aaron Burr is played by Leslie Odom Jr. Also on February 6th, but in 1820, Doc Durant was born in Lee, Massachusetts. He's played by Colm Meaney in AMC's Hell on Wheels. If you want to learn more about the real Dr. Rant, check out episode number 202 of Based on a True Story. On February 11th, 1847, Thomas Edison was born in Milan, Ohio. He was an inventor of many things and also the nemesis of another great inventor, Nikola Tesla. Edison was played by Kyle MacLachlan in the 2020 movie Tesla that we covered on episode number 201 of Based on a True Story. If you're finding some value in Based on a True Story and you want to give some value back, you can do that over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. There you can also learn how to get ad-free versions and help keep the show going. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.